fill in the blank. God is blank toward death-deserving sinners. God is blank toward death-deserving sinners. There are multiple correct answers to this question, but what word comes to your mind first? Does your heart mostly feel God is angry toward death-deserving sinners? Or does your heart lean God is loving toward death-deserving sinners? Maybe you're even uncomfortable with describing sinners as death-deserving. You, you know you're a sinner, but death-deserving? Does that sound reserved for an extra evil type of sinner? If, if so, maybe you think God is less merciful to those death-deserving sinners over there. In Genesis 2 and 3, God himself fills in the blank. What does God say is the posture of his heart towards sinners, especially death-deserving ones? As we open his word, let us pray that God would help us know him and ourselves better. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Um, thank you uh, for speaking uh, to your people whom you've made in your image um, to be in relationship with you and not leaving us in the dark, um, but giving us the light um, that is your word, to know the light that is you, Lord. Um, so give, uh, give me a heart to worship as I preach, um, and give us all hearts to listen um, worshipfully um, as we hear your word. Um, and may you do something we have no power to do, change our hearts uh, to love you with all of them. Uh, give us minds um, that love you with all of them. Um, and Lord, just give us accurate views of your holiness, um, our sin, um, and just amaze us today uh, with your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Pastor Bill began our sermon series in Genesis 1. We were reminded, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all of it was good. Very good. In Genesis 2, God's goodness is displayed toward mankind. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. You'll find it easiest to listen to this sermon if you have a Bible or Bible app open in front of you because I'm going to ask you to examine verses for yourself. Let us begin by reading Genesis 2, verses 5 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Breath exists in the nostrils of humanity today, not because we are the fittest of species to survive, but because God is generous. 
In his abundant generosity, he willed the man of dust to be made in his image with boundless dignity. God gives man not only breath, but also a beautiful, nutritious garden and the honor of working it. Let's continue to read verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made, up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're used to hearing about goodness in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to skip verses 10 to 14 for the sake of time, and they also paint a picture of land, of a land rich with flowing rivers, good gold, and precious stones. But the idea of evil comes out of nowhere. What is evil? How do we distinguish evil from good? The text doesn't give us any hints immediately, but it will soon. Before then, however, God speaks in Genesis 2 for the first time, and it's about this tree. Skim down with me to verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, to this point, all we've read about is life. But the good, generous God we've been getting to know puts up guardrails in verse 17. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What about eating from this tree warrants a death sentence? Again, hints come later. Until then, Genesis 2 continues to hammer home God's abundant generosity, as if breath in his nostrils and a garden for a home were not enough, God also gives man a helper. Read with me verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God saved the best gift for last. What an abundantly 
generous God. How should God's generosity inform how we hear his command in verse 17? To not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His generosity should make us trust him. He gave us humanity, life, food and shelter, a spouse and himself. God has been nothing but trustworthy toward mankind. That trustworthiness should set, set the tone for how we hear all of his word, including his commands. Do we hear God's commands with the tone of an unjust judge or a generous father? A generous father who loves us more than we can fathom and knows what's best for us because he designed us. Everything I do toward my 10-month-old son is because I love him, including when he tries to crawl off the bed head first, and I stop him, grab him by the legs, and pull him back. He may not like that, but what he doesn't know is that daddy has saved him from breaking his face and or neck about 10,000 times, if not dying. And he's never thanked me once. He, he doesn't understand. He doesn't know any better. And everyone in this room, except maybe lingering babies, is a thousand times wiser than my son. Yet God is infinitely wiser than you, than you are of my son. And in his infinite wisdom, he creates guardrails for humanity called commands. Commands which help us to enjoy his abundant generosity. Did Adam and Eve hear God's commands in the tone of fatherly generosity? Read with me Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In 2021, on this side of the New Testament, we all identify the serpent as Satan. Revelation 12:9 says, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. But look at verse 1 for yourself. When the serpent approaches the woman, there are no signs that evil lurks behind this snake. It approaches simply as a beast of the field, which God gave Adam dominion over, and Adam named, and even examined if he would be a helper fit for him in the last chapter. There are no signs of Satan until the serpent questions God. How do you anticipate temptation happening to you? When Satan tempts you to question the generosity of God, your heresy radar will not be set off by devil horns or a pointy tail. Look at what verse 1 calls the serpent. Crafty. His tempting you to question God will come through what you find most normal. Just another neighborly beast of the field saying, 
Did God actually say that? The serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God didn't say that, of course. He generously made every tree of his garden for man to eat, except for just one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is this crafty serpent trying to do? How does his question make God sound? Restrictive, mean, unfair. But the woman gets a chance to correct the serpent and defend the character of God. What shall she do? Read with me verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Not quite. God did not say, Thou shalt not touch the tree. He commanded them not to eat of it. The man and woman could play catch with the fruit and be within God's will. But the serpent's painting of a restrictive God sounds relatable to the woman. She could have responded by sharing about all the beautiful, nutritious trees God generously gave them to eat from. Instead, her response focuses on the one off-limit tree and adds limitation to God's command. The serpent then gets bolder. Read with me verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. According to the serpent, God is a liar. God promised the man, In the day you eat of it, you will surely die, because he's a selfish liar. That's why he said that. Again, verse 5 says, in, this, in verse 5, the serpent says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's why God threatened you with death. He doesn't want you to be like him. Neither is he actually powerful enough to deliver on his death sentence. You'll be fine doing what he said you'd do You'd be fine doing what he said you'd die if you do. What a generous serpent. Enlightening the woman to true freedom and offering her the chance to cast off God's shackles and be the goddess she deserves to be. What does life post-disobedience look like for mankind? Read with me verses 6 to 8. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is what happens when you have wrong beliefs about God, then act on them. God generously gave the man and woman an entire garden of trees that were good for food and a delight to the eyes. That's not mainly why, why the woman ate of this tree. Look at verse 6. The only difference between what God had already said about all the trees and what the woman wants is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to be desired to make one wise. She desired for her eyes to be open. She wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. Which is tragic because in one sense, God had already made her like God. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. To be created in his image means we are designed to image God. To make visible the beauty of the invisible God with our lives. We could not possibly have been created with a higher more dignified purpose than this. But it's not enough for the first image bearers. The woman wants a wisdom of good and evil that she lacks and God has. But when she and her husband eat, their eyes are opened and they see what their caring father had been keeping from them. They now knew evil experientially they knew sin and the shame it causes. What is evil? Evil is crowning yourself the all-wise God, which we do each time we consciously choose to sin. We crown ourselves as a better, wiser judge of what is good than God himself. That's why God said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Creatures made in the image of God were not designed to live according to their own judgments. We were designed to live as receivers of God's good gift and good word. And to show off the goodness of God through the joy we experience in a father-child relationship with him. When a car tries to sail like a boat, it sinks because it wasn't designed to do that. When a man tries to live by his own definition of what is good like God, he sinks into shame because he wasn't designed to do that, which isn't a design defect. It was ingenious of God to craft us in a way that makes us dependent on the God from whom all blessings flow, that we may only find satisfaction by enjoying the one who is infinitely beautiful. The wages of sin is death because sin is the rejection of the source and sustainer of life. 
On the day that the husband and wife ate of the tree, how does God respond? Read with me verses 9 to 15. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is God talking about in verse 15? The woman will have offspring, but God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. How will she have offspring if God has sentenced her to death? Read with me verses 16 to 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you returned to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. To dust you shall return. The man shall eat of the ground all the days of his life, the woman will bring forth children. God is what toward death-deserving sinners? God is merciful to death-deserving sinners. Second Peter 2 says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, as soon as they sinned. Because that's what justice looks like. Sin against an infinitely holy God deserves instant death and hell. But mercifully, God withholds death from the man and woman, from rebels who blame the serpent, their spouse, and God for their sin. Every breath in the nostrils of a sinner is mercy from God. 
And Adam celebrates God's mercy by giving his wife a name that means life. Read with me verse 20 to the end of the chapter. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God keeps his word. Adam does die in the day he eats. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. He extends the day of Adam to a lifetime. When God would have been just to carry out his death sentence in the first 24 hours of his transgression. How is God able to show so much mercy to death-deserving sinners, to Adam and Eve, and to all of their descendants? All that without being unjust. Because God has a plan on how to pay their debt to him through the offspring of the woman. God's mercy doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He calls sin what it is in all its dirtiness and says, someone has to die for this, but watch how far I'll go so that you don't have to. I'll send my only son to take your place because he wants you as his bride. Look back at Genesis 3, 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel Christ Jesus is this offspring. At the cross, the serpent bruised his heel. He craftily deceived Judas into betraying Jesus, who was crucified. But when the bruising of his heel was finished, Jesus secured the more fatal blow, the bruising of the serpent's head. What happened at the cross was the only solution to the curse, the only solution to the power of death held by the serpent and to the sin that separated us from God since the garden. When Adam ate, he represented us. Romans 5 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree so that God would cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That sin that makes us cover ourselves in shame, God set aside 
nailing it to the cross. Those united to Christ by faith are now clothed in his righteousness. Christians in sin no longer need to hide from God because they are hidden with Christ in God. Not only that, Colossians 2 says that at the cross, God disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Nothing can stop the offspring of the woman from bruising the serpent's head, which will be fulfilled on Judgment Day when Revelation 20 says the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in a mysterious way, Christ involves Christians in the fulfillment of this bruising. Paul tells the church, the body of Christ, in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ so identifies with his people whom he's covered that his victory over Satan is our victory because we are members of his body. I began the sermon by asking you to answer, God is what toward death-deserving sinners? Because what your heart truly believes about God's posture toward death-deserving sinners will dramatically influence your life. If you think God is mainly angry toward death-deserving sinners, no matter what doctrine you profess to believe, when you sin and feel shame for it, you will run from God. You will hide from God. You will cover yourself with good works, hoping that they make you acceptable in his sight. Then you will hold other sinners to the standard you yourself have set and angrily judge them as you image what you imagine God's angry heart posture towards you is. Yet, this will be a standard you can't consistently meet yourself, so you'll find yourself caught in a cycle of shame and judgmentalism. If you think God is mainly unconditionally loving towards sinners, so much so that he actually thinks sin doesn't deserve death, you will soon challenge God's word and reject his character. When you see kind, non-Christians, God's judgment will sound unfair. When you see sin crouching at your door and it's pleasant to the sight and causes pain to no one, God's law will sound like prison. When you hear exhortations from Christians for you or others to obey God's clear commands, you will become a mouthpiece for the ancient serpent saying, did God actually say, if you live this way, you will surely die? My God would not be so restrictive. And you will deceive yourself and others with a warmth that leads to hell. But if you think God's love is a merciful love toward death-deserving sinners, 
Oh, you may just break out into song. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You'll see breath in your nostrils as mercy from God meant to lead you to repentance. So when you see your sin, you'll survey the wondrous cross where Jesus died for that. And you will say with Isaiah, I greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And you will boldly access the throne of God and cry, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And you will know that God is faithful to do it. And that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you will be set free as a vessel of mercy to be merciful toward those who even sin against you. And you will lovingly take their death sentence seriously and tell them about the offspring of the woman whose heel was bruised so they might enjoy the presence of God forever. You might even start an argument with the Apostle Paul when he says he's the worst sinner. No, Paul, you don't know me. I'm the worst sinner. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example for those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Do you know my merciful God my God, who, being rich in mercy, makes those dead in sin alive with Christ. Let us pray that God would make known the riches of his glory to us vessels of mercy. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you, you had a plan um, when Adam and Eve sinned. A uh, plan that was already set in motion when we sin, that we can remember and cling to a plan where you would so love us that you sent your only son to die for us, Father. A love we cannot imagine. Help us, give us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love and to know your love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. Ah, Father, as we, as we go today, this week, and, and, and our, your word slips from our memory, Lord, please change our heart that when we sin, we may run to you. We may see you as a merciful God who no matter how dirty we feel, says, I love you. I, I give everything. I give my son to you. And I give you to my son. Oh, Father, help us remember these precious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.